Hey there, true believers, and welcome to Simply Devotion, the podcast that takes complex theological ideas and breaks them down into points of simply understanding. I am your host, Pastor Vinny. And I'm the podcaster that likes to remind you, when life throws a monkey wrench at your head, Jesus is still the logo, the logic, the reason, the word that builds your faith all the way back to the kingdom of God. Hey there, friends. Welcome to another exciting episode of Simply Devotion, the podcast that likes to take our understanding of Jesus and seek deeper theological levels for the many reasons Jesus is worthy of our devotion. And so in the last few episodes, we've been dealing with what Jesus had to say about the end of the world or the end of time, the eschatology, the study of last things while he was on the earth. Particularly, we have been looking at the sermon in Matthew 24 and 25 with its counterparts in Mark 13 and Luke 21. We particularly over the last three episodes, as you are probably aware, have been working through the three parables in Matthew 25. And today we are at the last parable. But it's fitting that it's the last parable because actually we are approaching the end of Simply Devotions Season 1. Next week, I will have a wrap-up episode. And in that episode, it won't really be um, on a deep theological level like most of our episodes have been. It will rather be just um, wrapping things up, explaining where this podcast hopefully will go next, and uh, seeking to um, get some feedback, hopefully, uh, from you to ask you some questions towards feedback. And then we will return later on with season two, once we've got some feedback from you. But today, we want to get on with learning more about Jesus going deeper theologically with Jesus, learning about why Jesus is worthy of our devotion. We want to particularly zero in on this last parable in Matthew 25. So if you are able to follow in a Bible, that's great. If you're not, don't worry. When we get to the Bible text, I will read it out loud for you. And repeated if necessary. That said, my friends, I just want to um, remind you of the sermon structure in Matthew 25. 
So Matthew 24 led into it, and it was all about the signs and the ways that the disciples and the modern-day church would know when Jerusalem was being destroyed, the end of the age was coming, and the return of Christ was coming. We spent multiple episodes of this podcast looking at that. And then in um, the first parable of Matthew 25, we looked at the ten virgins or the ten bridesmaids. And then in the second parable, we looked at the art of being grateful for the many things the king gives us to invest back into his kingdom. And now for our third uh, parable in this podcast, I want to ask you an interesting question. Are you ready? Here we go. What is the difference between a sheep and a goat? Let me ask that question again. It's probably not as simple as you would think it was. What is the difference between a sheep and a goat? They're pretty similar animals. They look a lot alike. They have similar diets. They are both mammals covered in fur. They have four legs. They have two ears, two eyes. Um, they both can go out to pasture. Um, they're both about the same size. So what's the difference? between sheep and goats. Well, maybe some of you are into farming and you're into agriculture and you're just listing off differences because there is more than one difference. Or maybe some of you are scratching your head saying, you know, I've never really thought about the difference between a sheep and a goat. Maybe you're listing out behaviors or, you know, functions that the animals can do for the farm. I don't know. I want to zero in on the most basic kind of difference we can think about. And if you are an expert in sheep or goats or farming or agriculture particularly maybe if you are an expert in biology. You may already know this. Sheep have 54 chromosomes, while goats have 60 chromosomes. Now, right now, I would assume, but I could be wrong, that you're probably thinking, uh, what's wrong with Pastor Vinny? Who cares how many chromosomes they have? Uh, 
Sheep have 54, goats have 60, who cares? Well, I don't care, and probably you don't care. Probably, you know, some veterinarians or animal scientists probably care deeply. I don't know. But there is a point I'm making here. Even on the basic, fundamental, biological level, sheep and goats are pretty similar. Pretty similar, but not exact at all. Okay, where am I going with this? Things can look very similar, have the same amount of legs, same amount of eyes, same amount of ears, same kind of furry stuff on them, you know, eat the same kind of food, be cared for by the same farmer at the same time, be in the same pen, be very, very similar, even biologically, but yet everyone would say they are not the same. So there are other differences about sheep and goats. Yes, <laughs> simply devotion may appear like it's turning into the Discovery Channel or the National Geographic Channel, but hang with me, I'm going someplace. There's a theological point coming. So there are other differences with sheep and goats, particularly in the area of behaviors. Like goats are more naturally curious and they're more independent and less needy than sheep. While sheep tend to be more distant and aloof, they are dependent more on the keeper or the shepherd. Sheep have stronger flocking instincts than goats. Sheep... Um, depend on the herd more than goats and they become very agitated if they are separated from the rest of the flock and yet at the same time goats are more durable and goats can you know, don't need to be in pasture. They can be in pasture. They can be in pasture literally with sheep. But they can also go off and be in the mountains. They can go off and they can find food out of the tundra. They can pull up roots and pull up. But sheep tend to need more flocking and more shepherd care and they eat grass and they're, 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 they're much more timid. Uh, you know, this is where we get the expression of being sheepish or being timid, all right? And that's significant when we think about these animals because Jesus uses them in his last parable about the Son of Man coming in glory at the end of the Sermon of Olives sermon. After Matthew 24 and all the signs, after Matthew 25 and uh, the midnight cry and the ten virgins, the, um, the investment of gratitude with the three servants, comes the sheep 
and the goats at the very end of the world, the end of the age, the judgment. And the key idea in this whole parable, just to put it up front, is inheritance. Who inherits what? This is the question of this last parable in Matthew 25. And this parable is recorded starting in verse 31. Let me begin to work and massage the text with us. It says in verse 31, When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, he will sit on his glorious throne. Verse 32, All the nations will be gathered before him. He will separate the people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. So what we see right off the top is that this is about the Son of Man coming in his glorified body, his glorified uh, status. Um, He's coming with all of his holy angels, and he's sitting on a throne depicting his kingly rule, right? Um, And it's, it's not just any throne, it's the glorious throne. And he's separating nations before him. And this is spelt out by the separating of people one from another. Now, it's compared to a shepherd separating sheep and goats. It's not literally sheep and goats being separated. It's nations and people, in verse 32, being separated. And they're being separated by the king, the son of man, who is on a glorious throne and has all of his angels with him. To me, this is a judgment scene. It really screams Daniel 7 to me. And where we see another judgment throne scene. In Daniel 7 verse 9, it says, I watched until the thrones were put in place and the Ancient of Days was seated. His garments were as white as snow. His hair on his head was as pure as wool. His throne Remember throne, the glorious throne? His throne was like fiery flames and its wheels uh, burning fire and fire stream issued forth and came forth from before him and thousands and thousands ministered to him. Remember, he came in his glorious throne with all of his angels. It goes on to say, In Daniel 7, verse 10, 10,000 times 10,000 stood before him ministering, and the court was seated, and the books were open. 
So in Daniel 7, verses 9 and 10, it's clear that this is a parallel with Daniel 25, verses 31 and 32. If for any Jew hearing Jesus give this parable, of course their mind is going to immediately go to Daniel and they're going to immediately understand that this is Yahweh coming glorified. Yahweh coming glorified is Jesus Christ, the Messiah, coming glorified. And he's sitting on a throne and all of his angels are with him in all of his glory. It's fire going every place, light going everywhere. Sort of a scene that is supposed to paint an image that humans can't really fully comprehend. That's the point here. And when he arrives, he's judging the nations like in the book of Revelation, when it says that the Son of Man comes with a rod of iron to what? Punish or judge the nations. So one of the things that Jesus Christ does when he returns is he judges the nations. But particularly here in verse 32 of Matthew 25, Jesus is not judge, just judging nations. Jesus is judging the people of the nations in the same way that a shepherd would separate sheep and goats. Now, we got to remember that sheep and goats are very similar. Yes, they have distinctive behaviors. Yes, there are some features about them that are different. But if they're all in a pen, if they're all herded together, from a long eye view, until you get up close and inspect them, remember, it's 54 chromosomes to 60. They're pretty similar creatures. So what we have here is this idea that there is a judgment taking place between nations and between people and that the judge is Messiah, the son of God, the son of man, actually, literally in this text. Verse 33 says, he will put the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. The sheep go right, the goats go left. Traditionally, in the ancient world, right would be considered the side of strength. Why? Well, most people are right-handed. If you're left-handed, I, I don't mean to offend you. I can, you know, I'm weird. I'm right-handed, but when I play hockey, yes, I'm Canadian. When I play hockey, I shoot left-handed. I don't know. Maybe because I'm attention deficit and, you know, my brain's wired weird. I can't tell you. But all I'm saying is traditionally in the ancient world, the right side is a side of favor. The left side, well, that's a different side. Let's just leave it at that. Well, we can at least say... Um, the left side was used to do the more unclean tasks that needed to be achieved in life. Nonetheless, at this judgment, the sheep and the goats, which are representing people, right? They are separated. And the goats go left, the sheep goes right. The goats are going into a curse... And the sheep are going into an inheritance. Remember, we will find that this parable is all about inheritance. 
Um, and we will see that um, one will inherit a curse and the other will inherit um, something much greater, the kingdom of God. But there is a dividing point here. There's two different groups. They're very similar. And it kind of reminds me of a parable Jesus once spoke about. It's often called the parable of the wheat and the tares, and we can find it particularly in Matthew 13, verses 24 through 30. And basically, Jesus says, hey, let this wheat and let these tares grow together because in their infantile state, you can't easily tell them apart. And you may think you'll be pulling out the tares, the weeds, but actually be tearing out the wheat. So he says, let them grow together until the harvest. This would be Matthew 13, verse 30. And at the time of the harvest, I will say to the reapers, first gather together the tares and bind them into bundles, and then burn them. But gather the wheat and put it into the barn. So in the parable of the wheat and the tares, there are also two groups at the end of the world. At the harvest, there are wheat and there are tares. In a little few chapters away from Matthew 13, in Matthew 25, there is another parable, the one we're focusing on today. And there are two groups at the end of the world. Goats and sheep. And so we can see that the reason that they were not separated earlier is because, you know, in the infantile state that they would have been in, it would have been harder to tell them apart. But when wheat and tares or sheep and goats make their way to maturity, it's much easier to tell them apart. So it says in Matthew 25, going to the next verse, 34, then the king will say to those on the right, Come, you who are blessed by my father. Take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. And there you have it. This is why this is about inheritance and what you will inherit at the judgment. The king says to those on the right, which are the sheep, Come, you the ones who are blessed by my father. And so you get the inheritance. What's the inheritance? It's spelt out very clearly in verse 34. The kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. Now, there are a few things I want to say about this. It's kind of an exciting verse if you, you know, want to ponder it a little bit. Not only are the ones on the right, the sheep, going to get the inheritance, but this inheritance has always been prepared for them since the creation began, right? So, like, this is the kingdom. The kingdom has always been there waiting for whoever would claim it, whoever would have the identification 
identifying characteristics that Jesus will go on to explain here in a moment. But it's always been there. It's always been the prize waiting to be had. It's not new. It's the inheritance. It is the kingdom of God that has always been there. It was prepared for who? Us. Since the creation of the world. Verse 35. This is their characteristics. For I was hungry. You gave me something to eat and I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink and I was a stranger and you invited me in and I needed clothing and you clothed me and I was sick and you looked after me and I was in prison and you came to visit me. Verse 37. Then the righteous will answer him, Oh, Lord, when did we see you hungry? We don't remember this and feed you. Or when were you thirsty? And we gave you something to drink. When did we see you a stranger and invite you in? Or needing clothing and that we clothed you? When? When were you sick or in prison? And we visited you. They seem very perplexed by this. And we'll get to it. Hang on. Because in just a minute, we're going to talk about why they're perplexed, but we need more context. Verse 40. The king will reply, Truly, I tell you, whatever you did for the least of these brothers and Sisters, you did for me. The implications here are staggering. We will just marinate in them for a moment. Jesus identifies with the least of people. Those not famous, those not rich, those considered unimportant, those considered unclean, those who are considered poor, those who end up in hospitals, those who end up in prisons, those who end up not in the in crowd. Jesus says, whenever a believer of mine cared at all for them, it was then that they were caring for me. There's an unbreakable bond here. I recently had a conversation about this with another pastor. Can we love God first or can we love people first? And, you know, the whole conversation, the whole idea focused around the fact that the two greatest commandments that Jesus gives, love your God and love your neighbor, have an order to them. But then I was just like contemplating this idea. 
Whoever does not love, and the context is your brother and sister, does not know God because God is love. And so this kind of comes back to this idea in Matthew 25 of the least of these, right? It doesn't have to be a literal loving of God. But when we love our fellow brothers and sisters, particularly the least of them, particularly the most broken of them, particularly the most, um, you know, neglected of them, we are in a larger way showing our love for their creator because their value literally comes from being created in their creator's image. And if we see the image of the creator being damaged and we don't intervene and we don't care, then how is that loving our creator? In fact, First John goes as far as to make that whole argument. If we scroll down a little bit further in 1 John 4 and we get to 1 John 4, 20, it goes as far as to say, whoever claims to love God yet hates a brother or a sister is a liar. Whoever does not love their brother and sister, whom they have seen, cannot love God who they have not seen. First John 4.20. It's, oh, man, I love the theology here, right? Let me, again, it's not our main text, but let me read it again because it's just so Jesus. It's just so rich. It's just so what the gospel is about. Whoever claims to love God, you know, you can be religious. You can be pious. You can be conservative. You can be strict. You can be... Um, ritualistic, whoever claims to love God in whatever way you're going to prove that love, whoever claims to love God yet hates a brother or a sister is a liar. For whoever does not love their brother and sister whom they can see cannot love God whom they cannot see. In other words, look, if you can't love the least of these from Matthew 25, you can't love God. Because the least of these in Matthew 25 are visible to you, and they are the visible image of God to you. But God's actual image is invisible to you. So how, therefore, will you claim to love an invisible image that you have never seen. But you know it's there by faith and you have a relationship with it through practice. How will you claim to love this invisible God when the reflection of his image is in his children on earth and you can't love them? First <laughs> John 4.20 
takes Matthew 25 a step further and says, if you're claiming that you love the Son of Man when he comes in his glory with all of his angels on his throne and you have been faithful until he should take you as one of the sheep on his right, but you have not loved the least of these, you are a liar. And God knows. Then he will say in Matthew 25, verse 41, to those on his left, depart from me, you who are cursed, into eternal fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, and you gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger, and you did not invite me in. I needed clothes, and you did not clothe me. I was sick and in prison, and you did not look after me. In verse 44, so they will answer, come on now, Lord. When did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or needing clothing or sick or in prison and we did not help you? How could we know? I mean, they, these people, they're always trying to, you know, get a free ride. These people, you know, I would give them a job, but they're just too lazy to do any work. Look, I work hard for my stuff. Why should I have to care about other people? And, you know, furthermore, come on. It's not like that they haven't had a chance. Like, and, and, and look, if you, look, Jesus, if you would have just told us that this guy over here or or this lady over here or, or this orphan child down there, if, if, if you would have just told us that they were actually you in some kind of cryptic disguise, we would have cared for them. We Look, we have enough food for you. We have enough food clothing for you. We, we have enough time to go visit you in jail, but, but you can't expect us to care about all these other people. You, you know, come on now. The point is, they might claim that they would have done it for Jesus had they known that one of these people were a representation of Jesus. Uh, but how do you explain that they did it for no one? That they just couldn't bother to care. I mean, they paid their tithe. They went to church every week. I mean, they would not miss an evangelistic series. And, you know, they were really strict about 
what they watched on TV, or even what kind of worship music that they could permit to be in the church because, you know, the church has standards. I mean, we were good religious people. I mean, we... We we studied our Bibles and you know we we learned our Greek and our Hebrew and you know we you know we 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 did the things that were required. Like how can you hold it against us? I mean, it's clear we loved you so much. So yeah, it's true. We didn't get out to the homeless shelter. It's true. We we didn't help that lady who, you know, maybe would not have aborted her baby if we cared. But come on, like, in terms of religious affairs, in in terms of being the church, we were the first ones in the pew, and we were upset when someone was in our place. Like, clearly, we are religious, Jesus. Clearly, we love you, Jesus, but you know... He says, he did not know you. Why? 1 John 4, 20. Calls them liars. And now you know why they're liars. Anyone can make claims to loving God. It's an anthorexic standard when people talk about we uphold the standard. An anorexic standard. Why do I call it that? It is an overtly easy, skinny, small standard that they point to for proof of their love of Jesus. Look, it's not hard to fill out your quarterly every week. It's not hard to put something in the plate. It's not hard to show up for a religious gathering on time. It's not hard to follow the church tenets and doctrines and to wake up and to pray and to eat and pray each time you have a meal. Like these are ritualistic things that are easy to do and they're easy to fool yourself that that means that you have real religion. But John, 1 John 4, 20 says that if you did just that, if that is all there is to your religion and that you neglected the needs of your brothers and your sisters, you neglected to show love of your brothers and sisters, you neglected to give them a reason to believe in a God that would care for them, then you are in fact a liar. And it makes total sense since James the brother of Jesus says in his epistle in the first chapter and verse 27 he says this this alone is true religion this is pure religion this is true religion undefiled before God and the father it is this that you visit the fatherless and the widows in their affliction and to keep himself spotless from the world. I like how the uh, New Living Translation puts it. It says, pure and genuine religion 
in the sight of God the Father means caring for orphans and widows in their distress and refusing to let the world corrupt you. I think the world that corrupts you is the pursuit of your own desires and your own will as opposed to loving your brothers and sisters. For anyone who says that they are religious are saying they love. There is a whole movement that just irks me to no end and I'm going to write a blog about it. I keep meaning to, but I know I'm going to take flack from some of my readers, so I, I delay. So now that I'm recording this in a podcast, please hold me accountable to this blog I need to write. But there's this whole movement within Christian circles that are like, Christianity is my relationship, not my religion. Okay, I... <clears throat> I get, you know, please don't misunderstand what I'm saying. I get it. Christianity needs to be your relationship. You are saved through your relationship with Jesus. But all religion is, is how you live out that relationship. It's not the piousness. It's not the getting up and praying and praying before each meal and you know, showing up to the right religious program at the right... That's not religion. There's nothing to be embarrassed about religion. Are you with me today? Come on. I, I, I can't hear you on this side of the microphone, but I need to know you're saying a hallelujah in an amen on your side. Look, this is true religion. Listen to James, the brother of Jesus. This is pure genuine religion in the sight of God the Father, there is more to it than just relationship. We need relationship, but we can't dump religion because we have the wrong idea of what religion is. Religion is only how you live out relationship. It would be like saying, I don't need a marriage certificate. You know I love you. I will never put a ring on the finger, but hey, everyone knows why we're shacking up. It's all good with us, right? Like, so, so then why are you afraid to make the commitment? I mean, if it's all about relationship and it's all about love, why are you trying to avoid putting a ring on it? Let's make it really simple because we need to keep moving here. But all religion is is the tenets or the mechanisms or the processes in which you frame your love for God. And James tells us what that looks like. When our religion is right, when our religion is real, when our religion is pure, when our religion is genuine, pure and true, undefiled religion, pure and genuine religion. In the sight of God the Father means caring for orphans and widows in the time of their distress 
and refusing to let the world corrupt you. So the Son of Man comes in his glory. He has his angels with him. He is on his glorious throne, which we see from Daniel, is spewing fire and power and, you know, majesty every place. And the Ancient of Days is there. And, you know, um, the courts are seated. The books are open. He's like, let's get the nations out. Let's get the people out of the nations. Let's start separating out sheep and goats. And let's put those who have been faithful, those who have loved me and each other, those who have loved both God and man. Oh, by the way, isn't that also, you know, there's just so many links in this parable. That, But that's also familiar, right? They love God and their fellow men. That's what Luke said was Jesus' practice when he was on the earth. He grew in his relationship with both God and man. Luke 2, verse 52. The the point here is that there's this one group and they're all about an outward religion. They're all about, you know, the kind of religion that makes people want to talk about relationship over religion, right? Like their religion is not real religion. Their religion is not pure religion. Their religion is not true religion. Their their religion is not undefiled religion. Their religion is not genuine religion. Their religion is just a pile of rubbish, rules and regulations that reinforce and make themselves feel good. But on the other hand, on particularly the right hand, there is this other group of people that their love for God is real. And it's their love for God that makes them sheep, that makes them docile, that makes them caring. It's their their, their love for God that makes them look at their fellow mankind and say, that is a reflection of who God is. And how could I, you know, kick dirt kick sand in the eyes of this dear sweet child of God who needs me and that God has put me into this world to lead back home to the kingdom. Now, I want to point out that even though we see how this inheritance is going down, it's not good, right? The inheritance to the sheep is going to be the kingdom of God prepared from the beginning of the world, but the inheritance of these old goats, uh, to use a lack of a better word, is going to be hell. But notice that Jesus was very particular about what his intention from the beginning and the foundations of the world was for hell. He said, yes, you will be accursed, and yes, you will go into this hell, this eternal fire. But it was never meant to be so. Seriously, check it out. Verse 41. It was only meant to be for uh, the devil and his angels. You know, so in other words, it was not God's intent that there ever be goats. His intent for hell or eternal fire or fire that that consumes completely. His his intent was this this idea of hell, which is, you know, not the kingdom of God. Was never to include people. It was meant for the devil and his messengers. 
the devil and his demons. It's almost like Jesus is implying that failing to love made them messengers of the devil or at least belonging to the same fate as the demons. It's like we have this choice. We can choose to love because he first loved us. Or we can choose to hate, neglect, and just pretend all that matters is if we get out. All that matters is that we've proved our piousness to God. All that matters is that we've reached the anorexic standard that we impose that the least of them could not ever in their wildest dreams rise up to. But we made it, so we should be in. But it's like Jesus takes that whole thing and he turns it upside down. He's like, yeah, you gave your money, you gave your influence, you, 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 you know, you, 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 you taught the lesson each week, you, you preached sermons, you, you, you know, you, you, you were early for church and you even helped get people parked in the parking lot. But, but, but you never really cared about the people who got out of their cars in the parking lot. You know? To reflect God's image is to love like God. So in Matthew 25, verse 45, he says, He will reply, Truly, I tell you, whatever you did not do, for the least of these, you did not do for me. Then they will go away into eternal punishment. But the righteous to eternal life. The Apostle Paul puts it the same in Romans 6 when he says, For the wages of sin is death, but the gracious gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. And so we have two groups, sheep and goats, and we have two outcomes Destruction and death or life and inheritance. In really, as close as sheep and goats may appear from a distance, <laughs> life and death are as far apart as anyone could imagine. And so there's kind of an irony here, right? It's hard to know in the beginning, but it becomes in focus for at least Christ who comes to judge in the end. 
And it's not their behaviors that is the deciding factor. And unfortunately, I've sat through too many sermons by uh, questionable people who made this all about the behaviors. You see, if you do the right things, if you visit the right people and, and, and you know, you you buy the right clothes for people and you, you know, feed them and you do all these good works, then, you know, you, you get into king, into the kingdom. But if you don't do all those things and you're lazy and you stay home watching Netflix, then, you know, what happens to you. But that's not what's going on here. This is not a behavior thing. I said we would come back to it and now we're going to nail it as we're closing this up. The Big $50 billion point in this parable to not miss is that the goats think they did everything right. And the sheep think they did nothing right. It's not performance-based. It's heart-based. For the goats... The very least of things that they could do for anyone, let alone for God, was like proof of absolute entitlement to the kingdom. But for the sheep, they didn't know what they were doing was going to get them credit with God. They didn't do it to get credit with God. They didn't do it so they could inherit the kingdom. They did it because the love of God was in them. And when the love of God is in you, how can you see the things that we see in this world and not want to help? How can you see children abandoned and not care? Even if you're not the particular solution, you still need to care. How can you see a person of a minority have their neck kneeled on and try to justify it how can you not care oh you can't say oh they have this bad thing they have no it's the least of these no matter how messed up they were or weren't this is true religion. This is genuine religion. It's a heart movement that comes upon the believer because the believer loves the same way Jesus loves because the believer has been loved by Jesus. The fruit of being loved by Jesus and being repentive and accepting salvation by substitutionary atonement all the way back in my second episode is a life that bears this love upon others. Not for credit not for reward, not for tokens that will get you coupons that will get you into the kingdom of God. But because that's what God did for you. You were least. 
you were broken. You were helpless. You were fallen and you could not get up, to quote the old commercial. And he came to you and he held you and he told you it's going to be okay. And you wept in his arms and he made you strong. How now you pass by others? No. Now you have the character of your father burning in your heart. You don't count deeds. You don't, you don't look for credit. You're not trying. You know, it's not about even trying to get into heaven. It's just about dignity of others, love for others, respect for what Jesus bled out for. On that cross, he would not let his spirit go into his father's hands, as he said, until they were forgiven for not knowing what they did. And so, true believers, we end season one of Simply Devotion on the note that when we are fully devoted to Jesus, when we have felt the love of Jesus, when we have allowed Jesus into those dark, hidden chambers of our heart. When we have repented and pivoted towards the cross, when our eyes behold the glory, as Jesus said, the cross is the glory set before me. When we see him high lifted up as Nicodemus did that day on the cross and as Jesus prophesied in John 3 that Nicodemus would remember the episode Nick at Night we saw our redemption we saw the cost of our redemption and we devoted our lives to that redemption, knowing that whatever we did, it would never be enough. And so when we saw our brother, our sister in need, it was just natural 
to want to be a sheep without expecting to be the wheat and not the tear. Thank you for being a part of season one of Simply Devotion. Jesus is worthy of our devotion. We love because he first loved us. Return in one week's time for my season wrap-up. It's not a theological teaching like this. It's just me reflecting about season one that has now ended. And inquiring of you what you would like more of in season two and reflecting as to where I hope this podcast will go and why. It has been my pleasure to be your servant for season one. You have been listening to a podcast by Pastor Vinnie McIsaac from simplyvinnie.com. Stop by our website, check out our blogs, like our Facebook page, follow us on Twitter, all that kind of jazzy promotional stuff. But most important, let's keep growing together in Jesus Christ all the more as we see the day of his return approaching. See you at the next podcast. God bless.